You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. My name is Chuck Marone. I am uh, with Strong Towns. This is our first Strong Towns podcast from CNU 26. I'm not sure exactly why we scheduled a podcast for literally five minutes after I finished talking on the other side of town, nor am I sure why we scheduled a podcast with John Anderson for the exact same time that John Anderson is speaking. Nonetheless, we're able to pull it off, at least for the last half hour of what we got scheduled. And actually, my plan was to have you, Monty, come in and, and chat with us as things went on. So it'll just be you and me. And I think that'll even be better than having John here, wouldn't you say? <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> All right. I got Monty Anderson yeah. here with me. The topic that we're dealing with is why is it so hard to get things built? You've been on the podcast like three or four times already, so I don't want to go back over all the things we've already discussed in terms of bio, but just for a brief bit, you're with Options Real Estate. You've been an incremental developer for years. You're part of the Incremental Development Alliance. Talk a little bit about your background and history in terms of, of building and development. You know, I came from um, Southern Dallas County where I grew up and lived my whole life, and I've spent my whole career basically doing incremental development in that area and never left. And one of the things that we talk about is cultivating neighborhoods. And by cultivating a neighborhood is where you find out all the, the secrets, all the, the X factors, where you, you develop the secret sauce by being there, you know, your whole life. So we're kind of like cockroaches in the neighborhood. We know every crack, we know every hole, we know everything. And so we've done everything from hotels to kind of like extras. You can't be killed either. That's right. You can't be killed. Just, <laughs> even through the good and the bad times. You can't be exterminated. Right. right. You're going to be there. So we've done a little bit of everything. So we've done, you know, theaters, hotels, you know, housing, uh, small mixed use developments, a little bit bigger developments. And even today we're in the running for like a gigantic development. So we've incrementally grown into to many different things. The, the one key, Chuck, for us is, and I tell incremental developers this all over the country, is it find a place, you know, be better if it's your home, and stay in that place for the rest of your life. It changes your luck. It cha the universal laws look good upon you when you do that. Well, so that's what we do. Let me ask you this, just in a kind of existential American question. In this country, I think one of the things that people point to as our dynamism is the ability to like move to more fertile ground, right? Contrast that with your notion of staying in a place and caring for it. I think a lot of times I will give advice when people say, well, here's my city and here's what it's like and what should I do? And part of me says, you should leave. Like it really sounds dysfunctional to me. What's the fine line between leaving a dysfunctional place and actually having a place that you care about and you you embed and you become that like deep deep so, well of knowledge so like in in southern dallas if you don't know about it dallas is a city of two halves the haves on the north and the south is the have-nots and that's where i grew up and in the, in the have nots in the have nots yeah and i i definitely when i was younger wanted to get out of there i mean i wanted to go somewhere where the grass was groomed and there was no wild dogs running on the street and you know people all had good cars and you know and signs were all neat and, but that didn't work out for me and one day I made a decision to stay in this area for the rest of my life and to make it as good as I could 
But being a small developer and somebody that didn't have a lot of money to start off with, you start with one little place at a time and you rebuild that spot and you find the best spot. You try to find the best spot, the closest to other things that are happening. And then when that area, and this is what always happens to me too for nearly 30 years now, that area gets good and starts to gentrify, which which is another subject. We, we like to use the word gentrification because we, we get our friends in early to own properties and so the gentrification is less harsh. But then what we do is go to the next neighborhood over the next worst neighborhood. And so looking for fertile grounds for me may look worse. Sure, it, it quite sure. often looks worse, but it's the next place where you can uh, actually invest and, and make something good happen. And you don't have to, to block up the whole city you can do one little project at a time and just keep doing them. And it's like a flywheel effect. You know, when you get one is, is okay, two is better, three is good, and four is great. So you get this flywheel effect and then the neighborhood starts to really go on its own. And it's like a ripple effect. And that's what we try to cause. We're always looking for what's missing, which is everything, you know, from groceries to donuts to snow cones. I mean, everything is missing jobs, you know, so. We're always looking for what we can put in place in that community to make it, make it work better. The question I get a lot is along these lines of why is it so hard to get things built? I want to focus on the public sector side of it, and then I want to focus on the private sector side of it. In the public sector, what I get a lot is, boy, um, it's just really hard to get anything done. We would love to have the incremental developers come to town and do things, but we wind up working with these big developers and the, it, it takes forever and they're not responsive to what we want. If you're advising a, a, a local government, a small town or a mid-sized town or even a large city who, who wants to see more stuff getting built, more stuff getting done, what are the things you tell them needs to happen to actually have that come to fruition? If it's in a Main Street area, first thing you do is get rid of the parking requirements, number one. Most of these areas were overparked as it is. Secondly, you know, change the setbacks on the small lots, you know, or the, the build two line. So what you want to do is you want to be able to have, in many cases in most cities, especially one of the cities in Michigan we just got back from, the, the setback lines on a, on a small lot on a building actually made it negative building area. Or that the setback from the street was so far back that you, you ended up having... There's actually a, no place to build. No place to build at right. all. And so I would say, you know, just by changing the setbacks, creating a build-to line instead of a setback, creating the build-to line, allow parking on the streets, whether it be parallel or head-in parking, depending on whether it's retail or uh, residential, and don't focus on the uses... You know, let just about anything go in that area, whether it be residential. I mean, you don't want to put a hog hog plant, you know, on a main street, but within reason, let let the users flex. The main thing, though, is parking, because most of these small towns, they got these small lots, and they have these cute little places everywhere around, and because of the parking, you can never build like a restaurant for sure, because you got to have so many parking spaces. Okay, let me say this though: when we start talking about that, people say, "Well, where's everyone going to park then?" If we don't require parking for everybody, where is everybody going to park when they show up? Don't you want your business to be successful that you're putting? Don't you want your... What would you, like, practical on the ground actually say about that? Well, first of all, the best places are always the places with no parking for some reason. I don't know why. I mean, you may can tell me why. The best places <laughs> yeah. are always have no parking. But there's all, also streets and, and parallel parking all up and down the streets all around these these areas. And... That can be a problem if it, if it starts to get too popular and bleeds over into the neighborhoods. 
But I think that you, you have to let the private sector market and the development market decide what's best. And, and as a city, when you're planning, you can't plan one, one little site. You gotta, you know, you gotta kind of look at the whole. And I mean, you don't want to put all bars on one street. Sure. All the traffic's there all at the same time. To have mix of uses where some of the charts that we have now in Dallas, Dallas has actually gotten very progressive with parking. They're letting us have a, a parking requirement by the hour. Okay, this hour, you know, who's here? This hour is who's here. So the more diverse that you have in your in your complex, the more diverse, the less parking you're going to have. So you're going to have... A church needs parking on um, Sunday. Right. It, office, uh, building uh, office building. Office building doesn't need it on Sunday. So yeah. essentially. Uh, a, a karate studio at night, you know. A, yeah, yeah. A light manufacturing in the morning. I've got a development that's got everything all the way from light manufacturing to retail. So you've got all these different hours. And we're actually using the parking to its fullest, you know, 24 hours a day. It's fascinating to me because most cities that want economic development think that parking is like a necessary component of that. But I've heard you say this before, and I've heard John Anderson say this too, is like the number one obstacle we face are parking requirements. Is that a matter of the scale that you're working at? In other words, if I'm the, uh, the Toll Brothers and come in, or I'm you know, some big developer going to build some you know, massive multi-million dollar, build it and you know, walk away type investment, mm -hmm. am I not bothered by the parking requirements the same way that an incremental developer is? And let's just say you get a big development come in, a big mixed-use development, big big restaurant. Let's say you get a 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 square foot restaurant come in. That's a lot of people at one time versus doing a 1,000 square foot restaurant. So if you have, if you have, you have to look at scale. You have to look at where you're at in scale because you can mix a lot of, there's a lot of really cool local restaurants that are 1,000 square feet. Well, they don't need all that parking. And they can provide vibrancy to a main street or to an area that's rebuilding uh, without having uh, great big, big retail developments, so some things don't fit. You know, some things like you said, a Toll Brothers doesn't fit. You can't look at one little thing. You got to look at what are the different things you want to come in to make the the community work in a flywheel effect. I want to probe on this thing about the restaurants because it's really interesting. I just finished a talk and I talked about the Taco John's mm -hmm. and that's kind of the one that Strong Town's become famous for. Yeah. I have people around the country who will stop at a Taco John's and take a, a selfie and send it to me. <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, this is where I'm at. The idea of building a Taco John's is that it's very efficient. You know, it's an efficient way to shovel food out the door. It's an efficient way for people to get in and get their stuff. It's got a parking. It's very efficient. I hear you arguing for, instead of maybe one, like, 4,000-square-foot restaurants, four 1,000-square-foot restaurants, that touches me as being, like, very commonsensical. But I want to give you a chance to elaborate on that because I don't think our development policies really favor that very no, much. No, they don't. Why is that better? Why would you make the case for four 1,000-foot restaurants instead of one 4,000-foot restaurant? So well, one, one thing, back to the Taco John's, I mean, how many hours a day is that parking lot full? Oh, yeah. It's I mean, like never full. Three hours, right. Maybe three hours. Max, it would be yeah. like an hour at lunch. Yeah. You might find a So it's wasted like for 20 hours a day. That space is completely wasted. Mm -hmm. But on the, the thousand square foot restaurants, the reason that they, they work so much better is that in each one of those, you're going to have probably less tables than you would if you had a 5,000 square foot restaurant because you're going to have kitchens in each one. You're going to have small staffs in each of those. And plus, they're going to be different. Well, if you're, if you're a successful developer or a town builder, they're going to be different. One of them's got to be breakfast and lunch. One may be 
lunch only, one may be lunch and dinner, one may be a late night, you know. So they're going to even have their own uh, heartbeat and their own diversity versus one 5,000-square-foot restaurant is going to have the same crowd come when it comes, at it, whether it's noon, breakfast, or, or dinner. So sure. they won't have the, the ups and downs like, a, like, like the diversity of different, different uses have. Right. Nassim Taleb talks about, he uses restaurants as an example of an ecosystem that itself is anti-fragile, even though every player is fragile. Restaurants come and go all the time. Mm -hmm. But if you've got a bunch of them, essentially they compete with each other and the restaurant ecosystem Mm -hmm. in an area becomes stronger and healthier and better. I know you've kind of led with restaurants in some places. Is that a strategy? Well, we lead with whatever, uh, sometimes whatever we can get. I've led with a barbershop. You know, I've led with anything that will cause life to be on the street. It may be that the restaurant is not ready and the barbershop is. The barbershop is nearly always ready. Or it may be the snow cone stand or a donut store. You know, it may be one of those. But it, it's like when I, when I was a kid in the South, if my dad said, we're going to get a snow cone. Okay. That's like, all right, we're going to get a snow I mean, it's excitement. Right. It's, and oh, I got, you, I got kids. Want. Yeah. What you want is excitement in the place that you go to. And, and if there's excitement there and people like it there, then there'll be more business there to go with it. The small restaurants I'm doing in DeSoto, Texas right now in a suburban development, I'm doing seven 400-square-foot restaurants wow. at once. Wow. And somebody said, well, will seven restaurants work in DeSoto, Texas? And I said, seven restaurants won't work, but 3,000 square feet of restaurant will work. And so this is 2,800 square feet of restaurant, but it's all diverse. Mm-hmm. And so some are serving breakfast, some are baking, some are doing snow cones, some are in the evenings. They're at different times. So it, it will work, and there is enough enough there to do seven restaurants in yeah. kind of a place. For everybody who's here in the crowd, part of this podcast format is that we're going to have some time for questions at the end. We got started a little bit late on this one, but I am going to give, you know, in like 10 minutes – if anybody's got something they want to ask Monty, that would be a great time to do it. You said the snow cones, and it made me chuckle because you and I have had this conversation before, and I, I want everybody here to hear this. You kind of blew my mind a while back when I asked you the first increment of development. And I talk about Jimmy's Pizza, this little pop-up kind of shop, a brick-and-mortar place, mm-hmm. but like a small little building as being like, we got to humble ourselves to that point. And then I talked to you, and you said, Chuck, that's, that's way too big and intense. Uh, you got to start with a tent. And I'm like, a tent? You've got to be joking me, a tent. Yeah. You're serious. Like yeah, when you yeah. say snow cones, you're actually thinking of like, Someone out on the corner with a snow cone machine selling stuff, right? That's right. Let's say, you know, you've all been to your towns and, you know, your towns go through all these plans and they're planning and then you do this pretty plan and everybody goes away and nothing happens for three years, four years, five years. What has to happen, in my opinion, in most places is something needs to happen this week while we're still thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that we can all do, if we got nothing, we have no money, we have nothing, we could put a, a snow cone or a lemonade stand under a tent. And then actually you could add a couple of things more onto that. I mean, you could add a garage sale onto it or add. And so street markets are something that I think are very good for incremental developers to start with because you got to acquire the land, you got to find the tenants, and you got you got to collect rent, you got to clean up the trash, you got to make sure people have a place to go to the restroom, those kind of things. And you can actually build yourself from there if you got a little more money and you got a little more policy with the city says that we can put a trailer up so we could put an airstream trailer you know selling a little fancier you know and from there we can go to a little brick building and therefore you can go to a 
a, a retail building with maybe one tenant or a, a place to live in the back. And that's what we build. I mean, we, we have them everywhere, as you, as you know. Yep. You can literally start. There's no reason that if you have the will that you don't start this weekend. I'm seeing the building official in my mind, like freaking out or the, the engineer freaking out or the planner freaking out. Like, you know, where's your sprinkler system in your tent? Where's the, uh, what the kind of inspector, comes the out health inspector. Yeah. yeah. If you are a local government trying to make something happen, why is it so hard to get things built? Is there a burden there? Yeah, there is. Let's just say that I want to, I got a little fruit stand in a tent and I want to cut up some watermelon. Yeah. And I want to hand out some pieces of watermelon. Well, you can't do that. You literally can't do that because it's against the health code. Right. So, you know, they do it anyway in places. I mean, I don't know how we got by so many years the way we have without, you know, with all of this. But everything is a complete burden. If if we're going to put tents up against the street, you know, which we always try to do, we try to put our tents to look like buildings, future buildings. We put our tents where future buildings should go. And right. so at that point... You know, you may have to take a little bit of the street or something, or maybe take a lane away for temporarily, things like that. One of the markets that we did, it took us a year just to get that, just to get as simple as that. And then once we did it, it was so simple. Now it's automatic. It happens, you know, every month. Right. But just getting it started, it takes a long time to bring people along like this. If you have a mayor or a, a city council person or a city manager that gets this, it's a lot easier because they'll tell the staff to do this work. Right. So you're a developer. You've been very successful at this for a while. You're not talking about going into wealthy neighborhoods and you're actually talking about poor neighborhoods. How do we get things started? How do we get things going? There's this tension between the idea that we need to have a path for people to get things started. Yeah. What we talk about at Strong Towns is we need a way for people to start with nothing and end up with something. There's also a kind of a flip side of that where, okay, do we have places that are unsafe? Don't we have these regulations about you can't just sell watermelon on the street to protect people? Mm -hmm. I know you're a compassionate person. You're working in some really tough neighborhoods doing great work. What's the balance? I hear you pushing back on it. I'm, I'm inviting you to continue to do that. From your perspective, is it the greater evil that someone will get exploited on a watermelon? Or is it a greater tragedy that these neighborhoods sit and stagnate and lack like any capital investment? Definitely, it's the, the second, the, the neighborhood lag. What's the worst thing that can happen by eating a bad watermelon? Or I mean, you can, God forbid, I don't want somebody to get sick of anything, right. okay? But... But the worst thing is these neighborhoods stay sick forever and ever. They're already generationally sick. And what I find in the in the a lot of the neighborhoods I, I work in are very diverse, you know, and mostly minority. And in those areas I find very creative people who have never had anybody spend time with them or don't have an entry point to come out of their garage or out of their kitchen with a product and put it on display. And don't have anybody to help mentor. Ridiculously okay. creative people. Very, very creative. I mean, yeah. look at look at music, look at clothing, and look at all those things, where they come from, you know, where it really comes from. And and cooking. I mean, local cooking and, and great food comes from these grandma's kitchen or Aunt Jane's, you know, place of cupcakes or, yeah. you know, it, and, and all they need is an entry point to start with. That's all I needed when right. I started. I just needed the lemonade stand because I wasn't an educated guy. I didn't, I was an old motocross racer, so I didn't go to go to school, but I needed the lemonade stand I could I could stand behind in practice and then I could learn 
then I could learn. Sure. But I couldn't learn in the classroom first and then going to the to the street. So by having these places, and, and most of the people that I deal with are not educated enough or can't get good jobs. They can't, they're just not going to get it based on their education because we're talking about places that are 50 to 70% unemployment, you know, 90% poverty in some of the areas. And so this gives them a really uh, interesting place to enter. And then, you, you, you know, you have different levels of entry after that. you got to have the, and that's where real incrementalism comes from, is these areas. And so you just think of the discipline. You, I mean, if you're a scientist and you're going to the moon in a rocket ship, you don't start off without cutting a frog open. Right. You know, right. you got to start right. there. So yeah. You have to learn the disciplines, you know, to, to build up. But today we have so many developers that are just financial architects that started with a lot of money and never actually learned the disciplines. And that's why we have such bad development around the country. Talk about that side. Why is it so hard to get things built? I think there's a lot of people here and a lot of people who you know are tied in with you guys on the incremental development lines who want to build things. But for them, getting started seems really hard. What are the first steps you'd say to get started if, if I want to be an incremental developer? Go buy you a house and fix it up. You yourself, you're a tenant in yeah. your house, yeah, right? and you own the house, so you're the investor. So I'm living there. You're a tenant in your own investment. Yep. So go buy your house and live in it if you have to. If you can buy a duplex, that's better. If you may buy a retail little retail strip around the corner, if you have an office, you can move your own office in, you know, or maybe you find the barber that you go in business with. Mm-hmm. Before that, though, you could have put your street market. I mean, you could do that in, in conjunction with the little building and the little house, you know, in the, same, in the same neighborhood. Now, all of our policies and our codes, and why is it so hard? Again, is it's if I have an office, okay, and I want to put a residence above it. Now, think about this. Now, what do you do in an office that causes any danger? I mean, you microwave right. some, you, know, yeah, you yeah. microwave the coffee if it gets cold. You have to have all kinds of fire separation. Between you. And maybe even a sprinkler system. In my personal office, there's this awful sprinkler, this $75,000 standpipe system for a little 5,000 square foot, two-story, two-unit residence above and office below. Right. And it's completely out of out of whack. Right. It's just completely. And that's just it was because what they try to do, the codes are written for like large projects. And they're not they're not leaned down for these small these small projects. Right. And it just it doesn't make any sense. Besides the setbacks and the parking, there's plenty of fire and other building code issues that just do not make sense. I've always seen and sensed that when you look at the building code and you see like all the different codes that apply, there's a sense, and, and I've had this confirmed in a couple of places. I want to see what you think. There's a sense that I get that if you have that much regulation you can pretty much find a way to do what you want if the building department is flexible and willing to work with you. I had a funny situation happen not too long ago. I had a guy, a brewery going in my, one of my buildings and we were having all kinds of code issues. And this guy that's the brewer happened to be a code writer for the FDA. Okay. So so reading, (laughs) reading building code was like elementary. Yeah. So he got in there and started getting in all the code, and he found all kinds of loopholes. We got to do everything we wanted right, to do. Right, right, because he but knew all the, be, yeah. But yeah. just think about it. If you're a small developer, you're coming in, I mean, you can't read all, you have to be nearly like this Superman. Right. You have to be able to read code. You have to be able to self-finance. Mm-hmm. We didn't even talk about finance. That's a whole other issue, but you have to be able to do all these 
all these things you, you really because you can't go you can't afford to go hire consultants and and architects and engineers to and you know mortgage brokers and all this to do that you have to be able to do all that all yourself right I'm going to ask you one more question, but before I do that, I just want to say, if there's somebody who has a question, I'm going to ask you to come up here and you can actually chat on the mic, so you'll be next. Give these guys a little bit of an update on the work you're doing around Atlanta and what you've been invited to do there. In, in West Atlanta, Incremental Development Alliance, not, not my company, not my, because again, part of what we teach is cultivating your own neighborhood, so I only work and do work in my own neighborhoods. but. From incremental development, I get my national fix through incremental development because we get to go around and share what we do with uh, with other neighborhoods. And we're working in West Atlanta, which they tell me is the heroin capital of the world. So, in fact, really, West Atlanta. You, how would you like to be this? You're you live in a very As you don't put that on the sign. Welcome <laughs> to the neighborhood. So I stood on the corner. I stood on the corner. I love the corner where all the action was. I always look for action where drug dealers and stuff are going because that's there's something good. Ur, there's something very walkable urban about those places. But if you got up every day, imagine if you got up and you looked at this awful football stadium that had a Mercedes emblem on it, and you're in the lowest income area in the uh. country, and you get to see Mercedes every day. Right in front of you, so so it's the, like, it's kind of yeah yeah, like, <laughs> and so Atlanta wants to preserve their legacy tenants. That was for words, our Facebook viewers. <laughs> Atlanta wants to preserve the legacy tenants. In other words, they don't want to gentrify the locals out, and so they got money from the football stadium, you know, to use and invest Atlanta to to create these small developers, and so we have about fifteen small developers from the neighborhood that we've been working with for over six months. And it's an amazing, it's amazing what happened to, to these people because these people were so creative and so smart and changed so much by just having somebody pay attention to them and to help them incrementally take one step at a time. And how do you put your money together? How do you put a, a, a package together? And so we had about 15 of them when we started last summer about 15 and we they just all presented uh, a couple of months ago when a couple of months ago March when they presented and in March they they made all all 15 of them made their they made it through the whole six-month class series that we had and it was just amazing to see them the way they dressed the the self-esteem you, you could you could just see it in their in their eyes and their and I get goosebumps just thinking about it because you could just see it in them you know you could see the hope and them and you and you what you know what you could see is these people were going to be able to take over their own neighborhood and build their own neighborhood because what I would call the bad guys want to do is they want to give this money to the neighborhood but what happens is they'll say well there's nobody to give it to because we got nobody out there that can do any development so right. we're going to give it to Walmart uh, Garden a uh, Walmart Market or we're going to give it to the Chick Fil A guy you know those that's what they're they're going to do so that way they can say they tried to help the locals but right. they couldn't. So they're going to give it to all the, the corporate guys. But you guys are standing up some people there. It's it's amazing. Yeah, I'm yeah. telling you, I am so I am so impressed with the people of West Atlanta that I cannot tell you. I cannot. I just cannot tell you how glad I am to be a part of the people yeah. there that are working. I've in, learned so much from them to take back home. I can't tell you. I mean, it's it's been unbelievable. I'm inspired by it too. Give us your name, Clay Adams. Clay Adams. And you have a question for Monty. Yes. Where are you from? I'm from Texas originally. I live in uh, Oregon right now. Oh, okay. You downgraded in Texas terms. <laughs> According to some. 
Uh, I don't know. I like Oregon. I, I like moved, Oregon. <laughs> I moved to Dallas and lived. Uh, I was poor, poor college kid, right? Moved to North Oak Cliff okay. before it became the Bishop Arts District. Yeah. And uh, as development started to happen in the area, me and my neighbors were priced out of the market. How do you find a balance between investing in a neighborhood and not pricing people out of the market? This is like the million dollar question, literally, right? This is gentrification. This is what this is. This is gentrification. Let me tell you what happened to North Oak Cliff. What happened to North Oak Cliff is the head of the Chamber of Commerce and all the big developers around got together and changed the zoning in the in the tax incremental financing districts so they could shove big things big ugly things in the neighborhood to cause all the land to go up okay the, all the land just went through the through the roof which basically that pressure pushed out everybody that was had anything affordable but the problem with the people that got pushed out it's partly their problem their fault because they needed to get in and own real estate in the early days and I call this gentrification. So you get in and what we teach, like in West Atlanta, it's gotta happen in West Atlanta too, by the way, is get in there and own your property. You know, have a couple of units down, down the road. Even if you don't have a lot of money, if you can buy the right property and have two rental units, then you can, then you can stay there. And if you do get run out, at least you get rich. You know, you get rich on the You walk right. away with something. And, and we have a little ice cream man in Bishop Arts. You may have known about him and he, he got ran out. Well, he had a month-to-month lease. So, I mean, at some point, you know, the business people have to take responsibility, even if they're a small business people. But it's our job in incremental development and your job in your communities. It's your job, too, to get those people to get in there and get them a long-term hold on, on their property. I mean, mostly getting ownership because that's how we build wealth back in the middle class. It feels sometimes like getting that start is so hard. But... In neighborhoods like this, I mean, I, I was in a neighborhood in Detroit where people were paying six hundred, eight hundred, you know, a thousand dollars a month rent on a house, and essentially could have bought that house with eighteen months worth of those payments. These were places that were dirt, dirt cheap. I guess answer the question about people who say, "Well, I don't have anything. How do I?" You just told me to go buy three houses. Who, well, who are you to no, say no, that? No, like, no, how do go, I get started? Go buy, I said, go buy one house. Right, go buy a house. Go right. buy one house and move in it. But own the neighborhood. How do I do that? I don't well, have anything. You can borrow money from somebody else. Yep. You can borrow money from friends and family. I mean, any just about anybody that's just breathing can get an FHA loan. You right. I mean, if you're just <laughs> it's got, true. If you got a, a good paycheck stub and 3%, you can get an FHA loan. And you can move into that house. And you can live there for a year and fix it up. And then you can rent it out after that and do an, and buy another one. And you have the cash flow to take care of the, the, the first one. It's an incremental process. You save your money. Then you may have to sell that one. Then, then things start getting better, okay? The, the, the neighborhoods start getting better. And you sell that one to use that money to buy another one. And then all of a sudden, and you bring your friends in. A lot of times people want to say, like, like in Detroit, Let's go up and invest. I love Detroit, by the way. It's beautiful. What I it's see, amazing. I yeah. There. So I wanted to go up there and start doing stuff because, you know, they'll say, well, let's buy stuff over there, but I'm not going to move in there. You know, so that's maybe not going to help the neighborhood as, as right. well. Right. It helps the neighborhood much more. I move into all. I'm like the shoe cobbler's kids with no shoes. The real estate developer with no home. So, I mean, I lived in a hotel for, for seven years that I had, and, and I live in a little bitty apartment above a cheap Chinese joint. Right now, I move into my stuff. I move into it, and I absorb it. And then it helps me have that sixth sense. It helps me have that instinct of what the next thing is to buy. 
And many times in areas that are that are not so good, you can get owner financing. You know, if you're if you're really passionate about a place, you're going to attract capital. I always say become attractive. Better to be attractive than a promoter. You know, if I'm out trying to promote you into doing something, you know, you're less likely. But if I'm attractive, if you see me doing good work and moving in, then I'm going to attract capital. I'm going to attract other other and, and people. I move into an area. And somebody will say, you're living there? And I said, yeah, I'm living there. I said, well, I found a place over here. I'm going to move. I'm, I'm going to move in there too. Yeah. You we're become like, a signal like for others. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Let, let me ask you this just as a closing thought, because it kind of occurred to me as you're explaining this, developers often get a bad name. And, you know, you got the developer go to City Hall and like, oh, we hate developers. Developers recognize. Describe the difference between a developer and an investor in terms of like what you experience on the ground. Because so, I, I feel like what you're talking about is a true developer as opposed to someone who so, is merely an investor. It sounds arrogant to say, say we're it. town builders. Yeah. You know, but I mean, we at CNU and at Strong Towns and Incremental Development, we, we want to build towns. That's what we want to do. We want to build towns. A developer, I see versus an investor, a developer is a promoter. And quite often a developer may be this person that doesn't have a, any money in the deal they just put the deal together they have no money in it no skin in the game and so therefore all they care about is the transaction building the project and, and then selling it and getting out the investor is quite often the ohio state teacher pension fund so the poor teachers of ohio don't even know they're getting into to a deal some brokers got them into a deal but the investor can also be our family it can be friends. And I, I tell people all the time, if you, you're going to raise a little bit of money, let's say you're going to raise $40,000 to get a little bitty small project going. Well, 40000 might be a lot to get from any one person, but you might find 10000 from four people, family and friends, that won't charge you so much interest sure. so that you can, get, you can get going. Now, you need to treat those family and friends like they're real investors. But the, the developer that people don't like is the one who's just coming in there, you know, they give the money around to the school foundation and the chamber of commerce and they give, you know, they're, they come in like that. They have pretty pictures and they talk about religion and things like that. And then they just screw you, you know, and then they leave. But if you're a neighbor, if you're in a neighborhood and you're building in your neighborhood, it's harder for us to do that because we're living, you know, we're living here. So we have to be more sensitive to what the don't ever trust a developer, even me. Don't ever trust any any developer ever because developers get pushed around politics code financing pushes them around and they'll li likely do something they didn't really even mean to do sure they you know they had good intentions so your job is as, as a community is to hold the developer accountable yeah to what they promise you and i tell people that all the time i'm promising you this today write it down because you got to help me stay true to the course so i don't mess up what i do Monty Anderson, Incremental Development Alliance, Options Real Estate. Mm -hmm. Thanks, my friend. Thank you. So nice to see you. Thanks for nice hanging with you. us with the uh, the technical issues on getting this whole thing okay. going, too. So, uh, thanks, Chuck. And thanks, everybody, for listening to the Strong Towns podcast. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. 
they know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, the city! The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.